1: and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST.
2: Hi, this is Billie Jean King. This is Marion Bartoli.
3: I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Sandra Winka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm
0: Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah, and you're listening to The Tennis Podcast.
4: Where's day two of Australian Open relived? I'm not sure we can live up to day one because uh, I've not really been able to think about much else since we recorded that show about Yvonne Goolagong Cawley. Catherine, she she's almost made me want to look up more stuff about her. And listening to people that have responded to that show and written to us, and it, it feels that she's really got under the skin of everybody who's who's remembered her. Who particularly people that were around at the time which is I suppose kind of the whole point really isn't it
2: yeah Pat Roberts is all of
3: us apparently (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure she's listened yet oh my mum tends tends to be a day behind with the podcasts
4: all right that's good uh, I, I drew attention to somebody that I know who I'm sure will be interested uh, in that show over in Australia, uh, and he said, "Yeah, I'm a bit busy at the moment. I'll probably get round to it about March, um, <laughs> but I promise oh. I will watch, <laughs> I will listen to it." <laughs> but anyway, um, it was it was a pleasure to do it, and um, we have more for you today because we're fast forwarding a few years from. Yvonne gulligan cawleys time at the top and her winning Australian Open titles in the 70s. We're going through into the 80s in in particular to concentrate on. Um, But really, the whole idea of this show is we wanted to cover the history of the tournament and its movement from Kuyong to Flinders Park, now known as Melbourne Park, in the years 1987 and 1988, We've spoken to Pat Cash, we've spoken to Pam Shriver, both of whom were very significant figures at both of those tournaments. I, it's, I don't really think I realised it when we first came up with the idea to speak to them, Catherine, that they had both won both to- – or or they'd both been in the finals of both tournaments, Pam having won them both. I mean, but then she just used to win everything <laughs> <laughs> with uh, Martin Navratilova. Yeah.
2: Yeah, um, yeah. It, 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 It's interesting. It was obviously heralded, and we'll we'll come on to talk about it a lot, heralded it. it, 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 There's this huge seismic change for the Australian Open, not just the change of venue, but perhaps even more significantly, the change of surface Mm. and the change of balls that we'll hear Pat Cash come on to talk about. So the fact that there was so much consistency in the eventual results, I guess, what does that tell us? I guess it tells us that the greats are great for a for a reason mm. and um champions adjust. is it champions are just
4: yes. well said, Matt. yeah yes well said her. which was a, a phrase jean. that
2: was busted out on the uh whitaker whatsapp group yesterday when um uh, billy jean who's with my brother at the moment uh, she's getting very cold on her walks because puppies do and it is very cold uh and her cable knit jumper that i've ordered for her because she refuses to wear her coat that I bought for her because it's too big. And um, I love it because it makes her look like a superhero, but she is not a fan. So anyway, I've ordered her a cable knit jumper. It hasn't arrived. And she had to go for a walk. Uh, and Math fashioned for her a um, a tea towel coat. <laughs> With the caption, champions adjust,"
4: <laughs> Was he referring to himself for I'm not, coming up I'm with that sure. idea or for Billie Jean? <laughs> Catherine's got a little uh, reminder on the phone that makes sure she says champions are just on a daily basis now. Um, yes. Let's go back in time and remember the origins of the Australian Open, which began its life in 1905, 116 years ago, on grass at the Warehouseman's Cricket Ground in Melbourne, now known as as the Albert Reserve Tennis Centre. I I was a little bit taken aback to find out that it wasn't always played at Melbourne. In Melbourne, it was staged in... Or
2: indeed in Australia.
4: Indeed. Well, it was, I mean, because it used to be known as the Australasian Championships um, and factored in New Zealand for, for a few years. But In Australia, it was also staged in Sydney, Adelaide, Brisbane, and Perth. It attained Grand Slam status in 1924. Um, But I mean, we've we've covered it in in parts with Billie Jean King and, and talked about it separately, but... It often just wasn't populated by the top players. There were, there were so many players that just didn't take part. Part of that was obviously geography, and back in the day, and difficulty getting there. Um, the dates we've we've talked about. Sometimes it was played in December, and either side of Christmas, which wasn't always ideal. And but as Billie Jean King was telling us, the the professional game was beginning to thrive at that time, and yet the Australian Open and all the Grand Slam tournaments remained amateur. So there was that discord between the two and it ruled out a lot of these top players. In 1970, for instance, uh, several big names didn't play at all uh, because they were employed by the National Tennis League, uh, the professional game. People like Rod Laver, Ken Rosewell, Andres Jimeno, Pancho Gonzalez, Roy Emerson and Fred Stolle Um, meant that they just didn't enter the Australian Open, didn't offer sufficient financial guarantees for them. So that tournament in 1970 was won by Arthur Ashe on the men's side and Margaret Court won the first leg of the Grand Slam, the calendar year Grand Slam. And I was quite taken aback to find out that at that point, Billie Jean King, who'd been in the last two finals at that point, then went on a 12-year... Uh, hiatus from the tournament she just didn't play the tournament for the next 12 years she did come back and play in the early 80s a couple of times um, but she was in her prime in the 70s and just didn't play the tournament and uh, 1970 would have been the ninth of Margaret Court's 11 titles so from 1972 it did set up a permanent home for the next 16 years it was played in Kuyong Um, And Steve Tigner, the writer for Tennis Magazine and Tennis.com, he wrote about that period of the game and history that the 1970s was the decade of the Pro Tour invasion. In those days, the momentum was with the ever-expanding circuits. They were played in modern arenas for big money and had hopes of competing with the world's major team sports. The Grand Slams, by comparison, were still played in creaky private clubs built in the early years of the century and were run by the game's even creakier old amateur guard. The majors looked like a relic from tennis's fast-vanishing past. Nowhere was this more true than at Melbourne's Koo Stadium, site of the least grand of the Slams at the time, the Australian Open. By the early 70s, the sun was setting on that country's 20-year run of dominance. The stars that took the Aussies' place were from almost exclusively from the US, Europe and South America, and they were happy to avoid what was then a late-season trip down under. The tournament was played, as we've talked about there, in December for much of the 70s and 80s. And get, get these for a few stats. Bjorn Borg played the Australian Open in 1974, never came back. Jimmy Connors made the trip twice in 74 and 75 Chris Everton, Martin and Avratilova each made one appearance in the mid 70s before skipping it until the the early 1980s and not only was the Aussie Open an inconvenient location at an inconvenient time of year the main court at Kuyong had an inconvenient incline at one end, we'll hear more (laughs) about that from Pater in a little (laughs) while imagine that, it's basically you're playing on a slope, um by the Aces, though, Steve writes... It, it
2: can't be inconvenient for both players. <laughs>
4: <laughs> that's, a, that's a very valid point, Catherine. In fact, there are certain football teams that manage to get big old FA cut runs out of a sloping yeah. pitch. Um, I'm looking <laughs> well, you at the levels.
0: Yeah. Well,
2: yeah, it, but, but at any one time.
4: Yes, For exactly. somebody, it
2: must must surely be a great convenience. Imagine mm. if you
4: were a slope specialist and you just cleaned
2: Isn't, up. Is uh, it Suzanne Longlin?
3: On I was a slope. Just going to say that. I think there's a there's a story about mm. Suzanne Longland being sloped, yes.
2: Mm. Oh. Excellent. Mm. So someone somewhere maybe has stats on who has the best winning percentage <laughs> on court Suzanne Longlen. But oh, that well, person well, is not me. I mean well.
3: I could I could say it's probably Nadal. Yeah.
2: Played there twice, <laughs> won there twice. <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> so Steve Digner writes by the 1980s the old guard had weathered the professional storm and was prepared for a counter attack world team tennis the biggest threat to the game's traditional calendar and the majors place at the heart of it had folded in 1978 that same year the US Open moved from the overcrowded West Side Tennis Club in Forest Hills to a much larger public facility and a new court surface at Flushing Meadows where of course it's now played today the French Open, led by longtime amateur official Philippe Châtrier, began a revamp and expansion. Perhaps its most beloved court, the Ball Ring, opened in 1981. Change came slowly at Wimbledon, but it eventually came as the famously authoritarian event became began to cultivate a friendlier relationship with its players. Yeah, It's hard to believe what it used to be like compared to what it is today. But what about the Australian Open?
2: Is, hang on, is that... Oh, no, that's written by Steve Tigner. It's not, it's not Australia calling another nation authoritarian, is it?
4: <laughs> <laughs> Back in the day, Catherine. <laughs> they might have been able to. Uh, the Australian <laughs> Open, um, as we said, was at Kuyong from 1972. And then in 1988, it moved to Flinders Park. Now, rather than me telling you anything more about that, uh, let's hear from somebody who remembers it Crystally clear, and that's Pat Cash. He he can tell the story better than any of us. He reached the men's singles final of the last edition of the tournament in 1987, and the, and the first edition at the new venue in 1988. So basically, you're talking right at the heart of his career. He was the Australian hope. Of course, they hadn't won the men's singles since Mark Edmondson all those years earlier. Um, And his two finals, I noted, came either side of his Wimbledon victory as well. So first of all, before that move to Melbourne Park, and you can tell us all about that, let's hear from Pat Cash about what Koo Yong was like.
1: Koo Yong had an amazing history. I mean, I was from Melbourne, of course. Uh, and, you know, it was always regarded as, as you know, the home of tennis. Um, it was a club, a private club. Uh, I suppose you could say it's Australia's version of, of Wimbledon. It was quite exclusive uh, private club with, um, you'd say, slightly uh, respectable, el- uh, more elderly members at, at the time. Uh, lots of courts. Um, you know, we had all the Davis Cup, big Davis Cup matches there. Uh, and that was, you know, it was, it was the main stadium. It was an old, very... Big, very round stadium uh, where you could fit three courts in the in on the in this in the center court. And what they used to do is rotate the court. so you'd play five days on the left side, five days on the right side, and then and the last five days, four days in the middle. Um, and it was uh, it was quite low low cut. It was only like two tiers, uh, except for the, some of the Davis Cup matches in the, in the past. And uh, I was going to say the nineteen. 1950- 50s um they used to build put up another tier right at the top which would have been pretty scary up there but that was it was just so popular the davis cup for australia that uh, they used to put an extra tier on uh for some of the legends that, that you know the, the big names that we frank sedgman and, and rosewell and those sort of guys used to sell it out that was the biggest the biggest ticket in in tennis um, and the wind used to sw- swirl through there uh, yeah the other the courts were very very quick and hard i mean it's sort of a, a bit like a uh, if you're a, te- a, a cricketer, you you would say that's a typical Australian sort of cricket pitch, um, grass courts that were fast and, and, and bouncy. Um, not necessarily the, the best, the the most even grass courts, but there was uh, a very basic changing locker rooms. Um, I mean, re- very basic. There's some really simple ones underneath the stadium. You know, it was full of it was cement. It was it looked old. I mean, you look at it now and you think, oh, wow, that was sort of, and all wooden benches. So uh, uh, it used to be stinking hot with no no protection there, um, and the court itself was wasn't actually flat. So it used to it was cambered down the at uh, down the ends. So you'd be serving, and the the net in the middle was actually I'm not sure it was uh, two or three inches higher than a normal net. So you'd be serving uphill, and the opponent would be just on the going downhill. Um, which made it really tricky, but it was an advantage for the Australians if they could, uh, uh, you know, if you could get used to it. But, um, you know, we, we weren't of massive height back in those days. If you were a pelk or Isner or something like that, you'd have a massive advantage because you've got so much height. But it made it kind of tricky with very, very tricky conditions, windy with that sort of net, fast and bouncy and slightly odd bouncing um, grass courts. Uh, it, it saw a, quite a lot of unusual wins and different sort of champions that, that came through in, uh, under those conditions. Mm.
4: Did did you go there at all before you were a player? I mean, obviously this tournament had been played there for many many years. I imagine your ch- your well, not your childhood, but certainly your yeah, younger years. No,
1: absolutely. I, and as a, as a kid, I, I was there. I had my very first tennis lesson there. So my my father wanted me to get into tennis, and he thought, well, oh, Kuyong's a place to go. And I had a tennis lesson right down the back there, not on the grass courts on the our version of clay. Um, and uh, when the tournament was on uh, there's a there's a there's a uh, a railway track that goes along the side. there's a kuyong uh, tra- train station and we used to get on one end and we used to run across the train track and sneak in the, the club for free that way, um and every just about every kid knew there was a entrance there's a little offense they could do that run across the track, sneak in the, in the back entrance and and wander up and and you'd be in not in the center court of course, but you'd be watching the outside courts and and there was a there were plenty of outside courts there and they had these low um, uh, sponsors hoardings you know in sort of plastic um Marlboro was the uh the cigarette company was the, was a big sponsor there, and it was I remember the red and white I remember it so clearly seeing some of the, the Aussie players and you could get right up close to them. It was just a great experience for me and my tennis mates to, to sneak in and, and for free, of course, as long as we didn't get caught. <laughs> <laughs>
4: um, just fast forward into when you reached the final, I was looking at your, your results that year and, and you didn't have any straight sets wins at all. You, you were re- it was really hard fought to get to that final on grass which was a stark contrast to the next year when you had a, a straight sets all the way to the semis. But in, in 87, what what was it like in terms of the, the atmosphere around? I mean, how did Australia, did you feel, take to you? I mean, this was before you won Wimbledon, but you were, you were a pretty big name. Yeah,
1: well, the, the, the Davis Cup final, the 1986 Davis Cup final, was over just after Christmas. So the Australian Open was obviously in the middle of January. The Davis Cup, which was massive, of course. We beat Sweden uh, in 86, um, and I had a couple of real tussles with the, the Swedish guys. That was that was our real big build-up. So I'd had a great comeback against Michael Pernfors, who played really well, beat Stefan Edberg as well. But we managed to sneak the Davis Cup win. I played all three matches back-to-back, back actually. I played the second match, first uh, doubles and then the first, first singles. So uh, I was next to exhausted, um, and... Uh, I ran myself into the ground and got the flu um, and um, you know, went on holiday for a f- for a few days and then just sort of got run down. As you do when you're stressed, and then all of a sudden you, you you relax. You tend to get your nervous system, um, immune system seems to shut down. So I asked them to push it off, push back my matches as long as I could possibly put them back. And so I hadn't had – I came into the tournament with hardly any practice, though I'd had plenty of tennis, you know, the months before – so they they pushed it back to literally the last match that they could possibly put, and and so I had a crammed schedule, and as you, as you said, I, I was a bit rusty to start with, and and I sort of fought my way through to um, you know the quarterfinals, playing uh, playing Noah, uh, very windy day where I damaged my shoulder. It was it was good enough to get get through Lendl, um, on a, I said it was a quick grass court, so that was a big adva- a, you know a big advantage to me. Um, and of course, the crowd were were, were pumped. You know, I was an Australian Davis Cup hero. Uh, you know, along with my teammates, of course, it was a team team effort, massive team effort. But you know, I was the guy they thought you know could finally win the Australian Open again. That's since uh, 16 years or whatever it was before. Um, and so, you know, I had, I had plenty of support uh, before be behind me, and and um, you know, I made my way to the final. And uh, you know, Stefan Edberg, who I'd beaten in the Davis Cup final, was obviously looking to some form of a re- revenge against me.
4: Yeah. Of course. And it was and it was a heck of a final. I've just been watching some of the highlights. So have you ever seen it back since?
1: I have seen some highlights actually reasonably recently uh, cuz I'm coaching a player and I wanted to she had no idea what I played like so I had to dig something out on YouTube. Um it was it was uh yeah, a really interesting match because you, you if you have a look at it now uh, if you, people go on and watch it, they'll, you, say, you say okay, very windy day with a really quick and quite uneven grass court. Uh, you can see how myself and Edberg were, and I wasn't serving particularly well because of my shoulder. So I was just sort of getting the serve in and running as fast as I can. And and um, you know, I was uh, I was actually. I was never debating defaulting the match, but I wanted to somehow get a, a painkilling injection into my shoulder just to survive through one day. I mean, I could barely lift my arm, but I got through the, got some physio on it and got out there. And Stefan just destroyed me in the first two sets. My reserve was just, you know, not up to speed, but I was able to put a little bit more onto it in the third set and, and got the third set. And then the fourth set, he, I don't know what happened with him, but he started fading away and uh, I was up a double break. And into the fourth set, I'm thinking, for the first time I, I thought, well, I was just happy to be out there playing. There's no way I could win this match, I'll just give it a shot. And all of a sudden I thought, wait a minute, if I get through this fourth set quickly enough, um, oh, I'll lead into the fifth set, fifth and final set with a bit of bit of momentum. Unfortunately, my shoulder went completely dead and I served I don't know exactly what it was, but um, after being you know five two up, I think I served Four, three double faults in one game. Four double faults in the next next game. Um, I end up winning the set, but the momentum was gone and it shifted to him. And uh, he got a break sort of midway in the fifth set and and finished it out. So, you know, in my in my matches and in my career, I, I, I see that. Even though at the beginning of it, I said I was happy just to be there and compete. Um, I feel like that's the one that got away. I really do. I thought if I could have just finished off that set. I could have got some momentum in the fifth set and Stefan was pulling his hair out of that stage and uh but uh it wasn't to be.
4: That uh that was the final match I guess ever played there as as the Australian Open. Um yeah, it was. And the, the the tournament moved. How did it feel to you at the time? Did you did it feel as somebody who played Wimbledon and the other the other Grand Slams? Did it feel that this needed to
1: happen to you? Well, we wanted a good big tournament. You know, we felt the Australian needed an upgrade. And at that stage, some of the, the players were starting to come back. They 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 me- messed around with the dates a little bit and uh, tried various dates. They tried it before Christmas, which was, I suppose, the first the last tournament, last Grand Slam of the year. Uh, nobody really came out, and they tried it just after Christmas. Of course, nobody came out then, and then they moved it back to mid mid January, and the players started turning up. So. The last year, you know, we had Lendl, we had McEnroe, we had, um, you know, Becker. We had all the players. There was a, there was a, a big, big tournament, um, but it still didn't have quite the prestige. And I think Tennis Australia realised they needed that, so um, we wanted to keep it on a fast, fast court. So we were really sort of fighting to say, "Well, Kuyong, can you know, can you build the stadium up? Can you make a bigger stadium?" And the members were very slow doing that. And it was only really when they, re- they realised that the Victorian government had decided to put millions into it and, and build up uh, and, and build on an empty rail railroad um, terminal right near the centre of town um, and, and build this massive big stadium, which was multi-purpose closing roof, which they could put concerts in, and whatever else, festivals in their music that they could – um you know i thought that this this had some value and it could get their money back uh because the Kooyong was you know it was a tennis event it was a tennis club and and that was it there was nothing really much on there though there had some did have some f- famous concerts back in the day led zeppelin and black sabbath used to used to play there until the, the neighbors <laughs> of course complained you because know, it was very residential there but um yeah so melbourne park which was flinders park at the time was was created And we were very excited about it. And what we really wanted was our own surface. So we trialled some different surfaces. There was some synthetic grass brought in, which was just the most terrible surface ever invented. Um, Great for rainy days. It's probably great for northern England or Ireland uh, where it rains a lot of the time because it absorbs the water water because it's really sand onto plastic grass. But that didn't work. And they said, "Well, we've got this surface called Rebound Ace, which was a rubberized surface, which I thought was great. It's hard court, but a lot of rubber on it. It's australian made um, softer on the knees and the body because it had extra rubber on it. But played like hard court. And when it got hot, it had some char- different characteristics, very bouncy. And I thought we thought, well, the biggest concern we had, and we we said that we said we don't want the Swedes and the Czechs to come in and start dominating. And this is before the Spanish became came in on." And started, you know, dominating tennis with their baseline game. We we really said we don't want the Swedes and the and the Czechs to come in and start dominating the Australian Open. We want a service that that suits our style of play. So we that was created was a rebound ace, which is really hard court, but a fast version of that. And um, you know, we were excited about it. Uh, one of the and then you know, leading into the tournament, we were, we were pretty. It was, it was a beautiful venue. We knew it was going to be fantastic, and we were very proud proud to have it. Um, but the only thing that they they really screwed up on was the balls now they had to use these they had these balls called nassau balls which were korean balls now the seoul olympics was coming up and they seoul wanted uh, their home brand ball to be used and they bought they basically bought into the australian open and part of the rules for the Olympic Games was the, the ball had to be a grand slam and it had to be played in grand slam uh, and it had to be of certain quality. Problem is the year one, they didn't manufacture the ball properly. It was a flat ball. It was, you could almost, uh, you could almost squeeze it in halfway. So here we were with a fast court, Australians, you know, serve and volley with ridiculously slow, flat balls. So the balls didn't bounce. They didn't bounce. So the the bouncy, fast grass court that we've been playing on we said well, we want the same but in this new stadium all of a sudden the ball wasn't bouncing so we didn't have that we lost our advantage and they originally wanted to change the balls at nine and 11. normally it's seven and nine because the two games for the warm-up they count two games of the warm-up and and I, I stood up and, and made a you know, press conference and said these balls are just not up to standard a few days before the, the tournament and of course that made a few headlines. Luckily for me, Martina Navratilova, who was a defending champion, I think she was defending champion, but um, she she stood up as well, and um, certainly defending Wimbledon champion like like I was, and she said, "Yeah, the balls are not up to quality; they they need to be changed more often." So we had at least normal ball change. But I almost I could say that at that stage, when I first hit with the balls, I just I just without really thinking, in the back of my mind, I said, "There goes my Australian Open chances." Um, there's no way you you, you can beat a, ba- a great baseliner with these conditions, um, but I gave it a hell of a shot.
4: You Sure did. I mean, you you as I said earlier, you went on a run of straight sets wins all the way to the semis. Then you had another massive tussle, uh, and then another one in in the final. I mean, f- first of all, did it did it now feel? I don't know whether it's right to say like a grand slam because it was a grand slam before but it w- did it feel a significant move on those the, the first day you stepped into Flinders Park meant now Melbourne Park and played your first round for
1: instance it felt like the best tennis stadium in the world i mean it really did because we you know if you look at the uh the US Open their stadium was still a, still Armstrong that was a you know an outdoor not particularly nice stadium Wimbledon, of course, is Wimbledon. It's great prestige. The French Open, uh, you know, they have a they have a nice, great center court. But they didn't have, you know, a 15, sixteen thousand stadium with with closed roof that so you could close if it was if it was raining. And so we felt, and rightly so, that even though they didn't have all the, all the, the big outside courts they do now with closing roofs, uh, we felt, and we had loads of land. That, that was the other thing. We had loads. That we knew that we could just keep building and building more stadiums and. When I say we I mean Australian Australian tennis um so we we did feel and we wanted that news to get out that actually in actual fact we've we've leapfrogged every stadium there is and of course we we're never going to have the prestige of Wimbledon, and maybe that's going to still be ahead of us, but they didn't have the court one either they had a pretty average you know the old court one was was there, so we felt that we had the, the best tennis stadium in the world and and, and I think we did. We had the best, and it's and it's still to this day, and it's, it's expanding, and and it is the best tennis stadium in, uh, for for a Grand Slam.
4: Yeah, how how did you feel within yourself because you were going in again as the guy who had so nearly won it the year before? You'd won Wimbledon as well, so I imagine that there is more expectations still on you to to deliver, as you said. It's Mark Edmondson all those years ago that has won, won the Australian Open, and nobody's done it since. How mm. how were you feeling within yourself?
1: I'm uh, pretty confident. You know, I was playing. i was playing good tennis, but you know, you, you know, you've, you've got to play some great tennis. It was interesting. The, the very first match, uh, they wanted me to play um, a night match. Uh, they wanted me to play the very first ever Grand Slam night match. Um, which was an honor, you know, it's going to be a bit of a ceremony and all that sort of stuff. And I said to them, uh, no, I want to play outside. It's, they said it was going to be, it's going to be 40 degrees or 39 degrees out outside in the daytime. Don't you want to play at night? I said, no, I want the court as fast as I possibly can because of the, you know, the, the balls and, 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 and I said, I'm a bit worried about the player. I've got to play first round. You know, he's, he's a, he's a good player. He's coming through really quickly. And, um, they said, oh, you don't worry about him. You know, you'll, you'll beat him easy. I said, no, look, I don't want to take any risks here. I want to play this guy called Thomas Muster, who, of course, ended up being number one player in the world. But they didn't really know him, but I knew him. We all knew how good this guy was. And so um, I wanted to play in the, in the boiling hot, fastest possible conditions. There was also, unfortunately, the, uh, the, the president of the Tennis Association was had a lot of pressure on him because I'd been to South Africa and played the year before uh, I had to go down there to, quali- to qualify for the Masters. I had to go down to South to Johannesburg. The last tournament of the year, myself and Brad Gilbert were chasing the, the Masters or the ATP finals uh, spot in New York. And we both went down there to try and get it. I was number nine and he was number eight. And it was the last tournament of the year. We went down there. We ended up playing each other in the final and I ended up ended up winning at it in, uh, in five sets to get myself into my one and only time I ever met in the ATP finals. But that wasn't very uh, well. Well, uh, uh, that was a very popular decision. So the um, the, the protesters uh, just wanted to interrupt match, and they made a deal. The president made a deal that they could interrupt my match on my serve, and come in and throw black tennis balls onto the court, which. I I knew there was going to be some some possible some form of protest, but they didn't really tell me what was going on. Uh, and he and he allowed that, and I thought, well, my goodness. I mean, uh, there was you know, but it was my focus was okay. Something's going to happen when it does happen. Yeah, you know, switch off and just get into the match. Obviously, they wanted me to lose because they were protesting what I did down there. So they were doing their best to interrupt me at the at the, a very crucial time in the match. But um, you know, so that was that was a, another interesting incident where I was sort of the hero but and of course uh, people were making it quite aware that you know my, my move down to South Africa was, was not a, a great thing but um, you know I got through muster in straight sets and uh, as, as you said and I was I was in some very good tennis form but there's a lot of good players in a tennis tournament. Mm,
4: there were. When you, when you went all the way I mean I'm just you, you described earlier as the 87 final as the one that you feel that got away and yet this the final that you ended up playing against Mats was that went all the way and in the fifth set.
1: Yeah,
4: how how does that feel different if it if it does at all?
1: I think I was sort of um, I think in that match I never real against Mats I never really had uh, massive momentum. There was there, what happened was it was like another typical Melbourne day as as uh, it was windy uh, blowing around. Um, the forecast was that there was going to be some rain. So I knew there was a possibility of some rain delays. Um, Matt's got out of the blocks pretty well, got me up a set and a break and then it, and it rained, uh, which was great for me. So I, I went in and I came back and I broke back, won the set and won the next set. And it was, uh, well, it was up a break in the next set. So it was almost exactly flipped around completely the other way. And, uh, you know, I was really on top at that stage and and, and the rain the rain came. Um so it broke my momentum. And then we you know and you will know that when we talk together on, on five live on the radio, how adamant I am about about uh, medical timeouts and all these things breaking up momentum. I mean, this is just a classic case. Sport is all about momentum. And here I have the Australian Open Final one Rain delay certainly helped him. One rain delay certainly helped me, or the other way around. Um, when he came back out. It was a, it was a real tussle. Yeah, I got to serve out the third set, um, and Mats went played really well in the fourth set, and I was I was getting I was a bit flat, um, you know, after the the big match against Yvonne Lendl, beating him into five sets. The world number one. It was on the twenty sixth of January, which was uh, Australia Day. Then it was celebrated. Uh, Australia won some. I'm not sure what tick cricket match it was it was literally in it at, at the mcg behind us there a big one day match against i think it was mighty against the english but um it was a big it was a big game um and i just felt a little flat so match came at me and and uh so at, at, you know getting into the fifth set he certainly had the momentum so i never really had had a chance to, to get on top like i like i did in the 87 when i was clearly in the lead but um you know, just the, the serving, the shoulder went 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 dead. Uh, against Mats, it was just nip and tuck the whole way, and he got up early break in the fifth. I broke back, played some really good tennis uh, to get back, and um, you know he broke my serve. At, hmm, was it was a seven seven six, yeah, I think seven seven six in the in the fifth set, and and served it out. So, so you know, I walk away from those matches going, uh, yeah, they're heartbreakers. I mean, I literally every time I walk into Melbourne Park. Um, it, it breaks my heart a little bit to say that I'm not one of those guys that his name is, is on the you – and know, I came so close twice. Um, uh, but that's, you know, that's the way it goes. And I, I can honestly hold my head up and say, you know, I played just about as well as I could, you know. I mean, given the circumstances, you're never going to be 100, 110% fit in a, in a final. You know, you know that. There's, you played a long two weeks of tennis. And, um, you know, considering everything, I, I played pretty well and I'm – Walk away from that, going, you know, you know those were beaten by a better, two better guys who were just a fractionally better, twice than me on on two days. Mm.
4: I, mean, I, I I get that now. Here you are, many many years on, and you can reflect on that. I just wonder how you would have felt at the time, because one of the themes that that we've come across in reliving all of these great matches from the past, so many times, the defeated finalist does an interview on court or does a speech and says, or is told, you will win this one day, you know, and that's that's it's obviously a, a lovely sentiment and it's one you want to, it's one the crowd gets involved with and they, they feel sorry for the person who's lost and, and, and it seems especially, I mean, you would have been what, 23, um, 24, something like that, and you, it looks like you've got all these years still ahead of you. Yeah. Did you assume or, or believe that this title was going to be yours one day? I mean, you've reached the last two finals.
1: No, not at all, really. Um, it actually took the stuffing out of me. That that, that year, that two years, uh, and I'd come back from a, some bad injuries, so it took a massive effort to, to get back from some injuries. Uh, I, I was a young father, so I was dragging my family around the world as well, uh, my two kids. Um, to be honest, I just ran out of gas, um, and I, I kind of needed a year off, and then... Um, the way life life has it is that uh, you know I broke my Achilles tendon and that was sort of the beginning of the end. So you know I had two a couple of good years, but um, yeah. And, look, another little caveat to the to the uh, to the end of that match and, the, and the, certainly the, the victory speech. When when I lost to to Stefan, um, you know they asked me to come and make a little speech at the last at Kuyong, and you know my my wording, I suppose, wasn't. It wasn't unintentional, but it wasn't it wasn't meant to be bad or anything. But, you know, I got out I said thank you, you know, thanks for the spawn, thanks for the tournament and all that. And I said, Look, I'd like to thank and the sponsor was Ford, Ford Motor Cars there. And I, I said, Look, I'd like to thank Ford and all that junk, but I'm gonna leave that to Stefan. Anyway, Ford got upset because so I called their cars called them junk. Um, yeah. And it was it kicked up behind the scenes kicked up a storm. A storm, and I wasn't being supported by Tennis Australia. Pat, you've got to do this. This is what you've got to do. You got to write an apology. To, I said, I said it was just a term of phrase, you know. I didn't call them junk. I just said the junk, as in, he'll make all the, he'll do all the speeches, he'll do all the thanks. Oh no, that's not the way they said it. They're thinking of pulling out of the tournament, all this sort of stuff. And I said, you know, in no of terms, get stuffed. I'm not doing it. So when I got to the final. That next next year, they said, "Do you want to make? You want to come up and say say a few words?" And I said, "No, I'm not going to say any words because you guys, Tennis Australia, didn't support me at all. And you know, you know, you could have, you could have done it. So I didn't actually probably the only runner up in history not to actually get up there and, and say any words. And so you know, I, obviously I was pretty up, I was pretty exhausted, and I was pretty upset because I'd played a match, you know, unbelievable match, and here I was lost two two times in a row. But um, you know Matt and I are, are good mates, and you know we there's a lot of media and all that sort of stuff you do after the match it was an, and and because they also they closed the roof, so that was the first time their final had been be closed so the second time after the second rain delay they closed the roof, so it ended up finishing pretty late and uh you know we had we had uh you know some clothes and we decided to go up to what was a a bar or a bar nightclub which was most most of the tennis players were up there and and then we said, well, "Let's just go to get a drink on the way home, you know, and forget about things." Went with my team, and 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 as it turned out, Matt, Mats was there as well, and um and we had a drink together, and you know, an actual fact, he, he I remember it pretty clearly. But you know, I came in there and I saw Mats and it was, he had his group, and I had my group, and there's a bunch of players around, and they have the end of the tournament, they a the celebration, and I think everybody sort of looked at me and then looked at Mats and said, "Oh, what's going to happen here?" Uh, because we're, we're good mates so you know I went up and and the, it was it was it was almost like you walk walking the western movie you know a guy crashes through the, the the bar and everybody goes silent and they just turn their heads turn it's like it's like a comedy movie what's going on and somebody sort of just grabbed my drink and I said here's to the australian Open champion well done mats and uh we we had a cheers when we had a and uh you know people clapped their hands and clap their hands and we had, we had a laugh and uh, you know we've been Great mates. We always have been, and and we're still great mates.
3: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which
0: That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
4: Hello Tennis Podcast listeners, David here. Now you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well that's pretty cool. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering tennis podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life, and of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Well, it's a lovely story, isn't it? And it's one of many that Pat told us about in that interview. I mean... When we were listening to that just now, Catherine, you you just said, particularly around the Ford story, you said classic Pat Cash story, because it it is really, isn't it? I mean, first of all, a guy who, well, we're both very fond of, we've we've worked a lot with him over the years, and, and... I personally, I really I really like Pat a lot. I've got a lot of time for him, but <laughs> but he does not put his foot in it sometimes. But, you know, that's just who he is.
2: Yeah, that is kind of the definitive Pat Cash story. Um, sort of just, just inadvertently wading into some quicksand and then once you're in it, go, well, I'm here now. <laughs> <laughs> kind of doubling down on it a little bit um yeah he he does get himself in some pickles but he's he's got a big beating heart pat cash mm. um and uh yeah he's he's uh, he's a good person and a a fantastic storyteller yeah fantastic storyteller
4: we we're all i mean we've all listened to that before uh, before this show and we're all just sitting here hanging on every word matt i mean matt you you don't know pat like what we do and you wouldn't have seen all of his years on the court and all that sort of thing but i mean some of the stories he's telling there you know right right at the start the the three courts on the center court that they use for for coo young i mean these are things that that you. I mean, I think you see the video and you can see the courts on the sidelines. But I, I had no idea that they used them all like that.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And sneaking in as a kid and trying not to get found out. Uh, yeah, I just, I just love that. And his recollections of those two tournaments are so clear. He, he clearly has played them back, thought about them. Um, that line he gave about how when he goes back. To Melbourne Park now, it, it it kind of breaks his heart. That oh. absolutely hit me in the gut when he said that. Um, mm. Completely reminded me of what Mary Curillo said about John McEnroe and Roland Garros, how he he still walks around there with a with a heaviness and with a weight, knowing that knowing that he never won it and let that lead slip against Lendl in '84. And um, yeah, I, I think we can think of these these Grand Slam venues as full of brilliant memories because those are the ones that we celebrate all the time and you know you all the slams have a parade of champions and whatever but you know they don't they don't always invite back the former finalists and they've got some tough memories in those places obviously he loves the australian open and everything about it but i can imagine that it is difficult to keep keep returning there and keep playing back that those moments in your mind where your life your career could have been quite different if just something had gone your way um yeah i'm i was really moved by that
2: and here in the uk we perceive pat cash as somebody who had the ultimate moment he won wimbledon um Mm. you know he was never a world number one he was you know i find it interesting him saying there that he he only qualified for the what's now the atp finals the once you know in terms of his ranking um and consistency winning that one grand slam and it being at wimbledon you know that was that was great crowning achievement for him. Probably about about par, um, but in Australia, I think he's perceived quite differently because he didn't win that home slam and because he lost in those two heartbreaking finals. It makes me think of what if Andy Murray had just won that 2012 U.S. Open and had and had only ever lost in Wimbledon finals, and you know his the way he would be perceived in this country would be. Completely different if he had if he'd never won a Wimbledon, um, and obviously Pat's ended up spending. I know he returns to, to Australia a lot, um, stars a lot of family out there, but his his main base is is here in London, just down the road from me. In fact, um, so yeah, it, it, again, it comes comes back to the the lost in time a little bit, and the it really really matters which one you win and when you win it. You know, it's mm-hmm. not. It's it's not a hard and fast formula for for what makes you linger linger in people's
4: minds, and of course, that's the thing, isn't it? So some things are massive in the moment, and he mm. described the Davis Cup triumph mm. at the time that was just so big. Um, and when we've watched back those highlights that I've watched today, the the eighty seven and the eighty eight highlights, and the, the crowd are treating him like a rock star aren't they? They're, they're hanging on every single move he makes. And and he was a huge figure. But that that drifts in time. And and, and as you say, I think he, when he walks into Wimbledon, he is probably stopped wherever he goes because people still remember the black and white headband. They still remember the climbing into the stand. These are iconic images. And you, you've mentioned Andy Murray at Wimbledon, these sort of things. But we see a lot of ex-players who were a big deal back then. Uh, and you go to various venues and they can walk around mm. without anybody noticing them.
2: Mm. I mean, Matt's Volander at Wimbledon.
4: Yeah. Yeah,
2: you know, seven time Grand Slam champion, you know, completely dominant for a period, won all three of the others. But at Wimbledon, he's not anonymous, um, but relatively so. Um, there was a, a very, very controversial line there from Pat uh, re artificial grass.
0: Yeah, which elicited line.
2: very diff- different responses <laughs> from Matt and David.
4: Yeah, I mean, I live, I spend my life on artificial grass. Me and Solid Hall Simon, who's now joined Twitter, by the way. Um, <laughs>
2: <laughs> his, his first uh, act on Twitter, well, passive act on Twitter, was to have one of his tweets liked by Billie Jean King. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Hill Simon, if you're listening, that's not how Twitter generally goes. That's no, it's not you like peak way the first day soon. everyone joins, the, they get the, a tweet liked by Barack Obama or something. That's not this not how it happens. Um, no, um, <laughs> but, but but hang on, hang on. You're not mentioning there that.
4: I hate artificial grass. I know. And, and yet... And he's not the only one. I mean, and, the, the, and yet...
2: Hang on. Hang on. We're not finished with this story yet, David. What? Well, Matt hates it.
4: Well, yeah, he, he hates it because I love it and I could take him out on but it. But he still beat you on
3: it. No, no, didn't. no we didn't play he on artificial played, grass. He played on oh. concrete. If he'd played I on my just surface... that memory in my head. We played on a proper surface. Yeah. Ooh. It would have all
4: been very different on that surface. Right, to okay. To be continued. Um, <laughs> uh, I remember Judy Murray slagging it off as well.
3: <laughs> 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 Apparently, uh, do not let any pros or any, any wannabe pros <laughs> grow up on it. The thing uh, is, it's, it's really, just as Pat said, it's, it's a really useful surface, especially yes. here because you can play on it in the rain. And I just associate it with school tennis matches in the rain, on a windy, cold day and it just being a thoroughly miserable experience. Everything I, <laughs> everything I don't want tennis to be, I associate yeah. with artificial grass surfaces. And those are the
4: conditions while we're having our rematch, Matt. <laughs> Gosh, um, we had
3: very different school experiences, Matt.
2: What were yours? Go on. Uh, t- tennis lessons at Kendrick Grammar School. I mean, artificial grass would have been the least of our
4: problems. Mm. Grammar school? <laughs> my comp... We would have had. Well, it still
2: a, still, a, still a state school.
4: You're having to patch up your net and ass. Let's just,
2: <laughs> anyway. let's just say the athletic program wasn't its sort of main prong.
4: It uh, was not at the, the forefront of the curriculum. The, the 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 lost in time element, fortunately, is somewhat uh, solved by YouTube, and, uh, and I'm very <laughs> pleased to hear that Pat Cash is uh, introducing his own style of tennis to his now pupil, his new pupil uh, Wang Chung, who's one of the top players in the world and who he's coaching now. And I mean, she. I wonder what she thinks. It'd be fascinating to, to know what she thinks when she sees him play tennis. Back I there.
2: wish she, you know those. Uh, have you seen those? uh youtube videos of uh the teenagers mm, that reacting watch to songs reacting to songs from like the 80s and 90s
4: yeah they're <laughs> great i haven't seen those they really. are
2: so great the one where they the one where they uh, watch uh phil collins mm. in the air tonight and their reaction when the uh <laughs>
3: the drums come in. The best thing we, to do with that video is, to, this is going to sound weird, is to play the video on mute and you can still tell where the drums come in because their facial expressions change so <laughs> so dramatically.
2: It's really great. I can't remember what they're called or what the YouTube channel is, but a, a, a search of teenagers watch music.
3: They've
4: right.
2: okay. uh, uh, well, well, we'll, spoken
3: we'll, to Obama and everything. They're like huge yeah, now. Yeah, it's
2: a, it's a really big thing. But I can imagine that, that Wong Chong watching... Mm. Pat Cash beat Ivan Lendl in 1988 we, <laughs> would have been the sort of tennis equivalent of oh, that. On. I'd have liked I mean, to watch it.
4: He looks cool and he's oh, so athletic. yeah, No, no. Oh, they no, no, love it.
2: Not in, they, Do they? Yeah, they yeah. yeah no, it. No, it's not a, it's not a um, sneery thing at mm. all. Is
4: it not? Oh, no, good. no, it's lovely. It's oh. really, really lovely. Right, well, let's end this podcast. I want to go and find <laughs> that.
2: Yeah, um, yeah, no, no. It, it's, uh, it's really uplifting.
4: Yeah, very good. Very good. OK, uh, well, we've, we've, well, I should tell you as well what I found when I went to Kooyong. I've only been once and it was the first year I, I went to Australia to cover the Australian Open for BBC Radio. And I went I went probably a week earlier than, than I normally would these days um, just because I wanted to see some of these places that I'd heard about. Because Kooyong was the place, it was the pre-Australian Open tournament as I knew it. I didn't. I not really cottoned on that it used to stage the tournament itself, and but it's it held and Pete Sampras used to play. I remember the, in the nineties, Pete Sampras would play Koo Yong as his warm up event for the Australian Open, and it was just a series of ex- exhibition tournament uh, matches as it is today. Um, but when I went and found it, I could not believe my eyes When my two thousand and three eyes uh, used to. What a grand slam tennis venue looks like, I couldn't believe that this place staged a grand slam tournament or or used to um because it just look it, it's like like Pat's saying it's just a little suburban tennis club to to my mind and e even the center court I know they built stands that that they wouldn't have for the for the exhibition, but even so. You cannot believe it. I mean, the clubhouse is absolutely beautiful. I have to say that it's it's classic old style celebration of the sport. It feels a little bit like I imagine the International Tennis Hall of Fame might look. Trophies everywhere and, and a big celebration. But it's, it's so much smaller than even I would have imagined.
2: Would it be like imagining a Grand Slam once having been held at Queen's?
4: Yes, I would say probably so. I would say Queen's – because I'm used to Queen's with all the stands up, that felt way bigger to me in 2003. I think when you take the temporary stands down that, that Queen's builds, it's more like that, yeah. Although I would say Queen's seems bigger and more grand, really, than, uh, than Koo Yong did, to, to just in terms of feel at least. A be- wow. beautiful place to go, though, and um, – uh, and a really special experience to have, have witnessed
2: it. Twins, the new trend, is the uh, YouTube <laughs> oh, good. channel. Right,
3: fine. Uh, I, <laughs> um, um, I was kind of amazed reading about this story and l- listening to Pat Cash there, just how seamless that that transition appears to be. Other than the other than the mix up with the balls. <laughs> Everything you read is that it was just immediately a, just a huge success. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a feat in itself because people are very reluctant to change, very resistant to change. And Ku Yong had all this history. And, and, and to leave that behind, I imagine, was was quite difficult. I imagine there was some trepidation as much as there was excitement about what, what Melbourne Park could bring. But yeah.
4: I, I think partly it's because they knew how necessary it was. Mm. But but even so, you're right. I mean, when you think of all the football teams that we know that have moved from classic stadia in, uh, that they've grown up in and that they're always going to be linked to, you know, whether it's Highbury or Upton Park and all these, these and then they moved to these new, quite soulless mm, stadiums, That's the word, that, isn't it? There, there was none mm. of that, really. What are you which,
2: trying to say about the Medeski, David? <laughs> <laughs> that's
4: the worst of the lot. Um <laughs> Oh, my goodness. You need to move on. Pam Shriver was also there in uh, 1987 and 1988, won the doubles with Martina Navratilova at both events. Uh, Let's hear what she remembers about uh, Koo Yong and then Melbourne Park.
0: Well, I kind of went through three stages of playing the Australian Open. The, The time I played in 1979, which was the year after I got the finals of the US Open at 16, I actually played four tournaments during the summer circuit in Australia, but went home for Christmas, which is when the Australian Open was being played. So I didn't even stay for the Australian Open, which now is crazy. I think that was a year either Chris O'Neill or Barbara Jordan won it. Um, okay, so then the next year, 1980, at Kuyong, the, the women's field became significantly tougher. Uh, virtually everybody started to come down. It took a couple of years for the ATP to then join and, and play at full strength. But it was obvious, very similar to how the U.S. Open outgrew Forest Hills, that the Australian Open, if it was going to stay on the same level as the other three majors, needed to do something major. And they did. And they got the government to be their partner. They got away from a private club. I can remember in 86 and 87, it was a couple of years before we moved. They had us testing different surfaces. And it was this surface tried called rebound ace. It was rubberized. I actually hated it. See like 20, I won 21 singles titles, about half on grass. So like when there was not going to be grass courts on a second major, because the U S open had already moved away from grass. It was devastating to my grass court game, but it was the right decision for the Australian open. And in 1988, when all the players walked into that facility to see Rod Laver Arena with a roof that closed and to s- just see uh, the beauty of that facility, it was really incredible.
4: Yeah, that surface. Uh, I, I've read a few quotes about how it seemed like the perfect equalizer for, for tennis, the most level playing field, if you like, for both styles of, of play. But there was also the, the element of how it seemed to become a little sticky in mm. the real heat. What what were your memories of playing on it?
0: Well, uh, in 1988, a lot of people don't realize that the two lead-up tournaments, Brisbane and Sydney, were still played on grass. So, of course, what was I going to do? I was going to play both those. I actually won both the grass court lead-up tournaments because I, I, I'm like, i got to play these. There's no way. I don't care. I'll come in ill-prepared, and I'll remember – Flying from Sydney to Melbourne, and I think even the day I won the singles, we went just to go over for like a half-hour hit, and it wasn't like your normal hardcourt, David. It was like your feet—you you didn't pivot it. Well, just wasn't the same. So, like, I struggled a lot. I, I'm six foot one. I had the serve-volley game. I found it extremely jarring. Uh, I I didn't like it from the start and I didn't have the best attitude about it either because I think in my mind it was like this surface is replacing grass. I think now the the more traditional hard court surface is what you say. It's like this very neutral equal surface for all anyone has a chance to win on it. But I, I wasn't a big fan of the rebound ace and I can in my mind visualize so many sprained ankles, quite a few torn ACLs because as it got hotter, it did get stickier.
2: Did the did the change of venue, Pam? Did it change your perception of the tournament, the size of the tournament, the significance of of winning it?
0: Well, Martina and I, um, we lost our first year at Kuyong and then we actually won seven straight Australian Open doubles. So it was uh, we won our last couple of majors at uh, Melbourne Park. I think '89 was our last of twenty. So did it change? I'll tell you, it was a bigger. It was definitely a bigger feel. It, it, it when you played on Rod Laver. Um, Even the doubles, it's a little bit like Wimbledon down there. They really do appreciate their doubles. And um, the first time when we won it in 88, it was pouring down rain. So there you have it. The roof was uh, used for the first time in a major final. Actually, the singles final, I think it was played the next day between uh, Groff and Everett, was an indoor uh, Grand Slam singles final that Groff won fairly comfortably. Uh, so, yes, Catherine, it had a very different feel from the little club at Kuyong that had like sheep or goats mowing the lawn up on the hills above the grass courts.
2: <laughs> Bring back the sheep. That sounds great.
4: <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's, it's fascinating to read up on it. And um, we, we we had Billie Jean King as, as our guest on the podcast uh, recently. And and, and one thing she really got over to, to me that I don't think I fully appreciated was that the Grand Slams were not everything back then, or at least the Australian was particularly the poor, poor relation, wasn't it?
0: Right. And that's why a lot of this, some of this conversation about uh, Margaret Court's number uh, of 24 is inflated so much with her, what, 11 Australians at a time when during a lot of those 11 not all of, not most of the top players didn't, didn't make the trip down using the example of my first Australian open in 79. I mean, I was around the top 10 in the world. had been a major finalist. I went home for Christmas to my family at age 17, instead of trying to win my first singles major. I mean, that's now it's just like, it sounds crazy, but that's, that's what it was. So, um, You know, I have to give us, and and the thing about the Australian Open through the years is, uh, and and now under the leadership of Craig Tiley for so many years, they just seem to make it bigger and better every year. They bring in, I think the US Open did it too, where they brought in like this whole entertainment part of it, where you you came to a tennis tournament, but you also came to an entertainment event where you could listen to concerts and you can see radio shows with the, you could actually see the broadcasters in their little protective broadcast booths, uh, out on the grounds. Um, just when I think about walking around, um, Melbourne park, it's like, it's sensory overload, but it's a blast.
4: I miss that blast. I think that pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? It's a blast. And yeah, we miss, we miss that. Um, I, I love hearing her stories and and uh, uh, as matt said halfway through that interview the casual manner in which she says yeah we won the last seven titles <laughs> held at guillon <Kewyong." laughs> <laughs> <laughs> they were unbeatable oh. um, but, but uh yeah i mean between pat and pam they've really summed up what a an impressive feat it was to move to melbourne park and it to become what it is now i i think Personally, I think overall, I know Pat liked the rebound ace, and I, and I I enjoyed watching it. I, I think overall, they've got it right now. Uh, the the surface, and if you think about the rest of the the stadia that they've built since then, okay, we might may not like the name Margaret Court Arena, but the actual facility itself with the reclining roofs, having three of them. I mean, it it is mightily impressive, Catherine, isn't it? I mean, you've been you've been coming for the best part of a decade as well now. I mean, it's um. Where does it stand out of all of them as a a sort of venue? For
2: for me personally, Mm. top, I think, probably. Mm. It's hard to argue with with three roofs. Um, I'm repeating myself to all regular tennis podcast listeners, but I find a night session to be... The best thing in Grand Slam tennis, in tennis, really. So for me, it's between um, the Arthur Ashe Stadium and uh, the Rod Laver Arena. Although, obviously, obviously we did sort of experience a little taster of what night sessions are going to be like at the French Open. Hopefully, warmer in the future. I won't, I won't judge them on on what we've seen so far. So I'll, um, I'll add them into the mix in the future. But the watching experience on Rod Laver Arena is as good as any in tennis that I've experienced personally
4: Mm. Right you Matt
3: Yeah it's number one for me it's it feels like it incorporates the best elements of all the other slams and puts them together and just creates this this wonderful tennis experience Um, and actually reading up on it it seems that that is exactly what they did Uh, there, there were a couple of architects who went to Wimbledon went to the Roland Garros went to the US Open took the bits they liked ignored the bits they didn't like there was, a, there was a funny line in a Sports Illustrated article that, that the ar- architects didn't find much to like about Flushing Meadows. Uh, <laughs> whereas, whereas they were enchanted by the landscaping at Roland Garros and, um, and, they, loved, and they loved the Royal Box at Wimbledon. The Rodlave Arena's got a similar thing. Um, but no, they, they in particular didn't like the steep steps and the long shadows cast on the court by the scoreboards. At uh, at Flushing Meadows, and um,
2: this was pre yarthrash Stadium, though. Of
3: course, it yeah. was. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, it, it has that feel to me, like the best of everything at uh, at Melbourne Park. I love what 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 Pam was saying about this this entertainment vibe. It, it does mm. feel happy and like a festival, and um, yeah, I mean, it, it, they know they've got a good thing you know they've got the summer they've got the start of the season and yet they don't sit on that they're constantly no. trying to improve and make it better and i really do admire that
2: has anyone ever died of fomo
3: before <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> let's not test it out no and they're I, not I, about I think to. i think i am
3: no <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah it, it's right now uh, as we're about a week and a half away from what will be the Australian Open, uh, we are missing that prospect enormously.
2: I am because I'm a very small person. Uh, I am dreading the day that all those tennis players get released and <laughs> <laughs> we just get smug posts. You say about you want them to have a rubbish glorious, time. No, I don't. I just I want to be a bigger person that can be happy for them. You just, just want to be there. And just I just want to be there. Join yeah. in. Is I want to join
4: what she, in. What are you saying? Yeah. Um, oh well. Next year, hopefully, we can, we can go back. Um, I mean, but I I mean, I know it's there's more to it than this. But I mean, look, Andy Murray desperately wanted to go, didn't he? Oh, I mean, and he wanted to. I feel to like we should set up a support group. Um, I mean, look, he's, he, he's missing out. As we know, we, we touched on it a couple of weeks ago and that's been confirmed now. He's not going to play the Australian Open this year and, and he's, he's just devastated. He's, by, by he's all...
2: frozen out. Yeah, gutted that, f- for him. That was and, his uh, caption on his um, snowman. obligatory snowman Instagram mm, post, yeah. frozen out of the Australian Open. Yeah. I, I I feel you.
4: I think we're still going to enjoy it when it's all on our TV screens. (laughs) We're going to be buzzing. Daily podcasts we're going to be doing for you, and we hope you're going to enjoy them. But we've still got um, a couple more editions of Tennis Relived to come for you this week, and we're going to be uh, uh, bringing you 1995 in a couple of days' time, Pete Sampras's Tears and all that. Uh, And then we've got 2017 to revel in on Friday. Am I missing anything else, folks? Any other contributions before we go?
3: Maybe a word for the, as uh, again, as, as, as Pam alluded to, that 1988 Australian Open, significant in so many ways. One of those ways is the start of Steffi Graf's yeah. um, golden calendar slam. She, um, she only lost, I was reading she only lost 13 games in the first four rounds of that tournament. Then she beat Hannah Mandlakova 6-2, 6-2. Then she won her semi-final 6-2, 6-3. And then she led Chris Everett 6-1, 5-1 in the final before Everett had a bit of a, a bit of a comeback and made that second set competitive in her last ever Grand Slam final. But um, yeah, just incredible. And Janine Thompson, her her second round opponent, summed up the experience of playing Steffi Graf saying, well, we'd only played one game when I asked myself, what the hell am I going to do? <laughs> 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 i i
2: i did i think i did know on some level that that was the final that year but i i don't think of steffi graf and chris ever overlapping at all that's amazing mm,
3: yes yeah, Ste- that steffi graf being so young and yeah chris ever steffi- right, she was right 18 when
2: she did that calendar mm. slam calendar golden slam yeah well she can't have been 18
4: for all of it
3: no, not unless her birthday is very early in January. Yeah.
4: But. I remember seeing them play and I, th- I think Chris Everett did get one win over Sophie Graf, maybe more than one in the early parts of their career. But but it, when they played, it did feel like they were playing slightly different sports just because the era has moved mm. on very vividly in front of your eyes at that point. Um, but yeah, you're quite right, Matt. That's a, it's important to touch on. Um, but it was... It's it's great that there is footage out there that you can look back on at that special change in time, really, from Kuyong to Melbourne Park. Um, but uh, we've enjoyed reliving it. We hope you have enjoyed it as well. Uh, hello to Cookie, who is our pet mascot for this week. Um, and also hello to Rogue. Uh, I think Catherine wants to say hello to somebody as well. Who's that, Catherine? Zeus. Zeus, right, Zeus. Uh, and Matt's going to say hello
3: to... The one and only Scousel Mousel, Three. of course. And we'll
4: also go to Chris Albert-Lee, who's our executive producer and top bloke. Uh, any shout-outs, Matt?
3: Yes, for Anthea Ooh. Young.
2: Like uh, Anthea Turner. Mm-hmm. And a little bit like Althea.
3: Yes. Indeed. Uh, by the <laughs> way, everybody,
4: my, my son's just started pr- printing his homework as I come to you. So if you can hear something in the background, uh,
2: <laughs> homeschooling, I've
4: entered tennis live.
2: Sauntered in,
4: yeah.
2: Yvonne Gulagong style. <laughs>
4: yeah. <laughs> but less effectively.
3: <laughs> um, for Christine Marlowe. Oh, hello, hello Christine.
2: Christine. I often get called Christine when people get my name wrong. Caroline yep. and Christine, yep. yeah. And,
3: and Marlowe, that's that's your neck of the woods, isn't it?
2: Yes. Uh, yes. Isn't that where um, Kate Middleton went to school?
0: I don't no. know. No idea.
2: <laughs> <laughs> There's a famous girls' school there, I'm sure. Anyway, very very nice, yeah.
3: Mm, and finally, for Matthias Caro.
2: Hang on, you said there were four?
3: No, I said there were shout-outs for the oh. following oh. people. He's too quick for us, Catherine. <laughs>
4: Matthias,
3: oh, hello, Matthias. Great it's name. always three. It's always three. Okay.
4: Matthias is a bit like that. The Albion player, Matthias Pereira, who is just an amazing player.
2: We, um, so. my, we had a my brother had a German uh, exchange student called Matthias or Matthias that came to us when well, my brother would have been about fourteen, so I'd have been about eleven. Yeah, it was a weird bloke. <laughs>
4: I must prefer ours, don't you?
2: He uh he used to sit all day. It was when we had a we had one family PC and it was in a sort of communal area and he spent the whole week just on that PC playing the flight simulator and doing his own um own sound effects. <laughs> <laughs> like plane sound effects. At the moment, that's a weird is.
3: experience when the student is is normal. Yeah. That's yeah. that's an uncomfortable week anyway.
2: Yeah, I refused to do my uh, French exchange because just anxiety about it was too high, and my parents supported me in that decision. So I can only assume they were also scarred by Matthias.
4: <laughs> but
2: great Matthias, name though,
4: Matthias. Uh, thank you so much for your support of the podcast, <laughs> and thankfully you're way better than Catherine's exchange student. Not mine, uh, my brother's. You don't, yeah, anyway. you, you don't
3: happen to remember your German exchange student surname, do you? It wasn't. It wasn't Caro, was it? <laughs> I really hope not. Really hope it wasn't.
2: <laughs> I will check in with uh, my brother and see if he can remember. I mean, Math had to go and stay with Matthias. And, yeah... Mm, yeah i'll i'll check in for further (laughs) matthias stories excellent
4: right okay well enough of that we'll be back in a couple of days thank you matt thank you Catherine. thank you pam shriver and pat cash enormously because it was just so great to hear their stories hope you're enjoying this series of tennis relived we'll be back in a couple of days